This is Mech's Design Talk, the podcast where we explore emerging technologies, user behavior, and how to design better digital experiences. The theme for this episode is the psychology of design. It's a challenging subject, and I'm joined by a guest, Abhishek Gupta, User Experience Director at Lumosity, to help make some sense of it. Our conversation touches on frameworks for user behavior, the role of in-house teams versus agencies, and continues to look at areas like artificial intelligence and how you observe users and get their feedback when they're engaged in flow states. Sit back, listen, and enjoy. Welcome, everyone. I'm Marek Pawłowski, the founder of MEX, and I'm delighted to be joined by a guest today, Abhishek Gupta, who is the User Experience Director at Lumosity. Abhishek, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks, Marek. Uh, nice to be here at the podcast. Yeah, I'm very glad that you could join us. Now, let me ask you this and put you on the spot to get us started. When, for you, did you feel that you really wanted to be involved in experience design in your career? Uh, <laughs> that'll take me a long way back. Um, so I was ultimately an engineer by profession. I didn't ever work as an engineer, but um, I was studying information and communication technology at my college in India called DIICD. Um, there we had a professor, there was just one professor who was a design professor. And so all the stuff she worked on was just mind-blowingly beautiful to look at. And uh, it just connected with me at a visceral level. So I, I don't know, invested a lot more time working with her as opposed to focusing on the courses that I was supposed to be taking. And that's how I think I, I got started. Uh, I got an internship at a company where they were doing um, design work. Um, after having graduated the college, I tried to apply for jobs that were user-centered, design-oriented jobs. And I worked as a UI designer, uh, worked on lots of projects for this company. Uh, that's basically where we started. So it sounds like uh, a lot of people have gone on to do interesting things in experience design at a high level. Uh, it wasn't necessarily a conscious choice from the outset. It was something which happened a little bit by accident. You had a, an inspiring mentor there by the sound of it. And, you know, you took a, a slightly circuitous route perhaps into this industry rather than it being a, a pre-planned thing. Absolutely. I think, I mean, uh, that's been the trend. Um, all the, the, some of the best designers that I work with, they've not had like a direct path to just, you know, them knowing they wanted to do user experience design and then finding a job and then studying about it. Um, it it's always been you know, they're coming from very different backgrounds. Sometimes they're engineers, sometimes they're product managers, sometimes they're coming from the business background, psychology, um, so many different backgrounds. But I think that's that's where uh, the strengths of user experience designers comes through as well. Um, what, we, what we are good at is not only understanding the needs of the business, but also balancing it out with what the user's needs and motivations are. Uh, understanding what, what our technological capabilities are with the team they're working with, and then you know synthesizing all of that, and then creating something that's of value. Well, that sort of brings us neatly to the topic that I thought we'd start today's podcast with, uh, as 
Our regular listeners will know we often start with a bit of a show and tell around a a particular theme where each of us and the the guests um, goes off to look out some examples in advance to just get a bit of a warm-up conversation going around a a particular idea. Uh, And this time around, the one that Abhishek and I had been discussing beforehand um, is broadly around uh, an issue of the psychology of design and particularly how you balance uh, the requirements to run a, a commercial business behind these services with the needs of the users and how you might think about particular frameworks for marrying up the user's behaviors with some of the commercial objectives with the org- of the organization that's creating the service uh, and how you can do that in a way which really ensures that a competitive advantage comes out of the sort of user insight that organizations uh, are able to do. Um, now, Abhishek, did you have an opportunity to go off and um, have a look at some examples which might help us give a, a tangible sense of what we're talking about here? Yeah, absolutely. At Lumosity, what we do is we try to create products that are really engaging. And we learn a lot from what other people have, you know, researched and how other companies are thinking about making engaging products. And I've chosen one of the frameworks that helps us do that. Um, we learn a lot from the industry and one of the, one of the major influencers in the industry is BJ Fogg, who came up with this Fogg behavior model that tries to describe, um, what is ultimately, uh, the essence for why people act or why people, you know, form habits. And so he basically talks about his model. Uh, the simplest way to explain the model is that behavior B is equal to M dot A dot T, which is um, stand in for motivation, ability, and triggers. Now, was this uh, a framework specific to digital or is this something which uh, he, he sees as being applicable across um, all areas of, of experience creation? This isn't even like experience creation. This is just, you know, any behavior that you would do, any behavior that I would do in life, um, any behavior that any living human being or animal would do. I think these are the three things that will come into play. So that's the most fascinating bit because experience design ultimately is a layer that sits on top of, you know, human needs, human desires, human motivations. And this is just a way of synthesizing um, how to understand those things and then create products that will connect and resonate with users so that they will also, uh, you know, create habits and use those products. Okay, so we've got the three elements, the the motivation, the ability, and the trigger. How how do they interact with each other in his model? So, yeah, I mean, um, all he's basically saying is that these three elements must converge at the same moment for any behavior to occur Um, you need to have sufficient levels of motivation you need to have enough ability to be able to do the actual that behavior and you need to have been triggered or cued to take that behavior so let's take any example like um, in the morning say let's talk about you like what what are some of the activities that you did in the morning uh, well, uh, I'm lucky enough to um, share my house with uh, a dog. Uh, so quite often the, the way I start my morning is by taking him out for a morning walk along the water. Great. So that's a, that's a classic behavior. Um, so you in your head may have an internal trigger because you've probably done this quite a, quite a few times. But when you probably woke up, you saw your dog and that was the trigger for you that then led you to do this behavior of taking him out and walking him. 
that makes a lot of sense. I mean, he's a a Labrador, so he has this unique ability to look at you with uh, those big Labrador (laughs) eyes in a way which suggests that, you know, it would be quite sad for him if he didn't get taken out for his walk. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. And so um, just jumping onto the ability um, piece of this thing, imagine that you had a broken foot. Then you wouldn't have the ability to take him out for a walk. And so if you're able to do it, that's only the situation where this behavior of you taking him out for a walk will happen. Does that make it clear? Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, so that's the ability piece. And the motivation piece is, of course, that you care about your dog and you probably care for its well-being. And so you're also motivated that, you know, this walk should happen because it's good for both of you. So that's one simple way of understanding motivation, but also the other uh, angle of motivation is um, when you actually go for the walk and the type of experience you've had in the past from having gone on the walk, it's ultimately a little bit rewarding. It's, it's, it's a pleasing thing that happens and it's not like a pain over and over and over again. Because if it was a pain, then your motivation would subside. And even though you may have the ability, you may have the trigger of your Labrador looking at you in a very nice way, <laughs> but you wouldn't have the motivation. That's a, an interesting um, part of that, that motivation aspect. So as you say, the kind of past experiences maybe which have built mm-hmm. up around that. And, uh, you know, maybe this is one of the differences uh, specific to digital experience design that we're starting to encounter now that mm-hmm. uh, in the early days, obviously, there weren't many um, benchmarks that you could a user could compare their digital experience to, and they wouldn't have a great deal of expectation around it. But obviously now, uh, as these digital industries mature, um, perhaps more and more that part of the, the motivation needs to be understood in depth because we all bring with us now this legacy of a, a wide range of digital experiences we've had over the years that might influence how we think about those initial motivations. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, in today's day and age, ultimately what's happening is you're competing for time and attention um, from the same group of people, right? And they're like, the time is being spent on so many things. It's email, it's Twitter, it's Snapchat, it's YouTube, it's um, Facebook. And so you have to be really mindful of what people really want to do and how are like these types of products able to create such type, such great engagement learn from them, see the metrics and the benchmarks that they're able to uh, get, and then see how your product is doing against them. So it's really helpful, but ultimately what is happening is you're also competing for the time and attention of the users who are using you know, so many of these products. Yeah, well, perhaps what we'll do is uh, include a link in the show notes uh, at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section um, to this model so that people can go and have a look uh, in more depth um, themselves to uh, be able to understand um, exactly how it's structured and how it could be applied. Uh, I'm interested, though, for you personally, Avishek, um Obviously, this is an example that, that you've sought out here. Uh, is it one that um, you have applied directly to the work that you're doing at Lumosity? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, we do quite a few learning sessions around um, behavior design frameworks. Um, we deconstruct some of the best-in-class apps. And there's a lot to learn from game designers as well um, in this specific field. Um, they think day in and out about creating things that are like, super motivating, super engaging. Um, 
so we learn a lot about that and then apply that to our products and features and you know design teams product teams and can you tell me a bit more about um lumosity and its products uh, obviously you and i have spoken about it a little bit but um i'm not sure that all of our our listeners will necessarily be familiar with it so what is it um specifically you're working on at, at lumosity and and what the the company offers overall yeah i mean so at lumosity we are basically a a brain training company what we do is we have web and mobile products that are designed to challenge your core cognitive abilities we also have a, a team that's basically trying to really understand in the human brain um, the idea being that scientists and designers work together to translate some classic neuropsychological and cognitive tasks into games and then these games are usually built on like specific research principles they're like designed to be challenging and adaptive um that's what ultimately lumosity is about it's a lot of games that people can can play and challenge their brain. So uh, when yeah. it works well, um, uh, ultimately, you know, what's the the best quality of experience you can deliver for the user around that? Because this whole area of of brain training and and how you get people motivated to uh, learn continuously and expand their cognitive capability uh, i guess is a, a relatively new thing at least in the the digital sense i mean for you when uh, you have a successful result with your user experience team there what does that look like what, what are the components of that success for you mm-hmm. yeah that's a great question the components for us as a design team is definitely the type of feedback we get from our users and so we're able to help a lot of people um, they give us amazing feedback that like they're playing this they're enjoying it they're feeling they're like they're challenged um and you know people come from different situations so there are so many situations where a product like lumosity fits in into their lives and it provides them value uh, they're able to feel more confident and when they tell us about it um that's that's ultimately from a design team's perspective we really care for uh, we try and understand how the you know metrics around user satisfactions with product features when we launched new product features and overall just in general user satisfaction ratings for um the whole product interesting well i'd like to come back to some of that later on in in the discussion because i think there could be some quite interesting nuances around some of those things of how you measure uh, user satisfaction in in that particular area and the whole notion of um encouraging users to do challenging things as opposed to do easy things which is quite often the the goal of of user experience in in other areas um but i suppose given that, that you spent the time to go off and find a uh, a behavioral model to talk about for our show and tell i should reciprocate as well uh, and the question um took me back to some work that we did within the mex initiative uh, going back now to about 2013 where over the lifetime of the Mex initiative we've been doing this about 12 years now around the role of uh, user centered design within digital um we've tried a bunch of different things to 
um, bring together all of the different strands and themes that we're trying to get people to think about for best practice and how you really understand the fine nuances of people's lives and how you apply that to make better design decisions. So we tried things like uh, our MEX manifestos, which for several years we would publish a manifesto each year where we'd set out, you know, these are the things that we believe uh, are important in this area over the next 12 months and these are some of the actions you can take around it and those seem to work quite well for a while Uh, and then we introduced this idea of pathways where um, we would get people uh, working specifically around say particular areas of emerging technology or particular types of um, uh, design methodologies and, and get them in sort of ongoing programs to evolve those but we got to about 2013 and thought, well, we really need to try and get down to first principles here in terms of how we interpret uh, users' behavior. And we came up with this notion of what we call uh, user modes. Did you have a chance to, to have a look at uh, some of the, the background on this? Yeah, absolutely. I thought it was really fascinating. Uh, but yeah, I'll let you uh, describe it a little more. <laughs> It's um, an interesting challenge, this, because obviously we did a lot of of research around it and it ended up becoming very broad and we realized we had to get it down into a a concise description. Um, And we came up with this idea that really a mode can be defined as a, a common way that people engage with a digital experience depending on their intent their environment, the time available to them, and the technology constraints. Uh, And we saw this as being um, rather different from, I suppose, some of the things which still dominate a lot of digital experience design, which tend to be around, say, uh, the type of device that you're designing for, or the screen size, uh, or perhaps a combination um, of those things. Uh, And we thought, well, actually, if you can really get down to the fundamentals of why is a user trying to do something within a certain set of constraints at a given point in time? Uh, that's actually a more reliable guide than doing it on the basis of, well, this needs to be for tablets or this needs to be uh, something which works well between you know the iPhone, the Apple Watch and the Apple TV, that those things are all quite transient. And in fact, it's the behaviours that remain and can be long-term um, uh, governors of, of, of these kind of things. Uh, So we thought that you can uh, break down digital experiences into missions, modes and enablers. Uh, So I want to give a tangible example to to make this a bit uh, realistic. Um, So a mission might be uh, an overarching thing, like you're planning a big night out with your friends. Uh, And within that mission, the user might experience several different modes of behavior. Um, So Communicate, for instance, might be a big part of that. You start off by communicating with your friends to decide on where it is you're going to be going. Uh, Then there might be a mode of consumption that the user moves into because you start to consume, say, restaurant reviews or information about the neighborhood that you want to go out in. Uh, And then another element might be something like locate, where you're making decisions specific to the particular location that you're heading for, uh, and that we can see each of those three things as being a distinct mode with a distinct set of behaviours and requirements. Uh, And each of those modes is governed by a set of principles. So if we focus specifically on something like uh, communicate, 
Um, we did a, a session all about the, the mode of communicating at a previous MEX event and several design principles which support those kind of experiences came out of that. Uh, one of them was this idea that um, you've got to respect the conventions of cultural etiquette specific to that particular user uh, and where they've grown up and, and where they live now um, if that kind of communication experience is going to be meaningful for them. Um, also, another one was that there has to be some kind of uh, meta layer of a signaling channel associated with the main communication flow so that you can do things like um, get people's attention before you start sending the messages. You know, these are some of the fundamental principles which govern that mode of, of communicate. Um, and then you have the enablers. Now, this is where... Uh, at the moment, still, I think a lot of design work is focused is around the particular requirements and properties um, of enablers. But actually, uh, these are very diverse and they're very transitory as well. And they're perhaps an unreliable guide to how we should really design for people. It might be something like yeah, the current trend we see within communication for messenger bots uh, or an older technology like SMS. Uh, but the point is that each of those things, um, while it has a set of properties which might govern a particular solution at a, a certain moment in time, actually is not especially long lasting. And that your best guide to design is to focus in on the very human behaviors associated with each of those distinct modes that might contribute towards the user solving their overall mission. So that was where we got to with it. Um, it's still very much an evolving framework uh, and one which we continue to try and get feedback on at the events and get people experimenting with. Uh, but what does that sound like to you, Abhishek? Was there anything in there which uh, jumped out at you as, as being relevant to the work that you're doing? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, absolutely. I think we we think a lot about, um, like you said, not being overly focused on, um, say, the type of platform you're delivering our solutions on. Like, sure, it's an iPhone-based solution or an Android-based solution or a web-based solution. Ultimately, at the essence of it lies a core problem that the user needs to solve or a core problem that the business needs to solve. And so if you can solve that problem and then apply the layers of, uh, you know, the modalities of how you're delivering the solution, that's a better way of approaching the problem than, say, approaching it from the other side where you're like, Hey, I have an iPhone and I have a problem. Now, how do I mash the two together? So that's one bit of it. And the other bit of it is I was interested in like seeing how, like say a behavior model um, applies to this idea of mission and modes. So let's say you said the mission was to plan a night out. Um, when you're planning a night out, it, it's a specific behavior that needs to have, again, like all motivation, ability and triggers happen for it, Right. So let's let's just talk about maybe a very simple example of when you are planning a night out. What's the first trigger that says to you that you should begin this behavior of maybe asking out, you know, get, getting your friends to come on board uh, around your plan? It's probably an internal trigger. And it's most probably some emotion that you're feeling. Yeah, I, I think it can vary. I mean, in my um, particular circumstances, uh, it would probably be very depending on whether or not that was something um, with friends uh, or whether or not it was something that I was doing, say, in a professional capacity. You know, we organize series of dinners and things for people in the, the MEX community. So um, that might 
determine a little bit where the motivation was coming from. But let's say it was a personal thing among friends. It might be, for instance, that, you know, you know, it's a good friend's birthday coming up and you're planning on getting together a bunch of people to celebrate it, for instance. Oh, nice. So, like, how would you know that it was a, like, I'm guessing you saw this on a Facebook feed that their birthday is coming up. Let's say that's the trigger. Uh, yeah, could well be these days. Um, I mean, I suppose if they were a, a truly good friend, maybe this is how you determine who's a, a genuinely good friend these days versus just an acquaintance is, you know, if it was uh, someone you've known for years and years, you might just remember, oh, hang on, it's so-and-so's mm-hmm. birthday coming up next month. Uh, but these days, I guess more and more, we just notice these things when they pop up in our Facebook feed now. Mm-hmm. So yeah, let's assume that was the trigger. And then, then the ability piece of it becomes for you do you have the time do you have prior bookings do you have the availability in the evening right and again then you can see the interplay of motivation and ability where you're like if they're a really good friend you're so highly motivated that even though you might not have had the ability because you had a prior engagement you would break that engagement off because you're highly motivated to go out and celebrate your friend's uh, birthday um so, I mean, that was just like one simple example of how the planning a night out mission plays out. And the, in terms of the modes, um, then you were talking about the idea of, you know, paying attention or like, like communicating this idea across. So you can see in the storyline of this, um, you seeing the trigger on your Facebook feed up until the event of you actually being in the moment and celebrating the dinner. There's a lot that has to happen, right? And is that is that where your mode idea comes into play a lot more? Yes. I mean, I think one of the things we realized early on was that um, these modes uh, would be things that people would move in and out of very rapidly. Uh, and as you say, you may describe that around things like motivations, abilities and, and triggers. And uh, in each one of those different sort of conceptual zones, you may find that people are switching between several modes, sometimes quite rapidly. Um, and that at the intersection of those modes is often where the most interesting experience design challenges come uh, in terms of how you plan those experiences and particularly around some of the the interaction elements of that you know when someone for instance is switching rapidly from um, a situation where maybe a, a motivation prompts them to think about the need to communicate with their friends to start organizing something through to then perhaps communicating uh, through through to perhaps consuming some information to support that decision and then going back into a mode of communication to share it. Each time um, you have those modes sort of swapping or intersecting with each other, uh, there are some really quite interesting challenges about how you get people to do that seamlessly and how you make it feel part of that overall mission and yet still support the particular nuances around each of those modes uh, as best you can in the moment. Um, and that, to me, I think is where perhaps the future of this framework goes for us is to really think more about those uh, those intersection moments. Yeah, very cool. And so, yeah, I'm gonna just apply this to like this specific journey that we were talking about about um, you getting triggered to arrange for a birthday party, and then um, you know, up until this point, up until the end of actually the birthday party happening, there's like a whole journey. You might be meeting a lot of friends. You might be inviting a lot of friends. You might be in different locations. Uh, you might be in different cultural situations. Uh, you might have a different friend. Um, 
say you meet somebody on the street after having invited the first few people to the birthday party you meet a different friend on the street uh, who is from a different cultural background and you get triggered that you should be inviting them but now in this specific location given the fact that they are from a different cultural background how does a, a product or uh, maybe there's a product that is supposed to you know through and through help you out with this process of arranging for a birthday party how does this product now come into play and enable you to do um you know enable you to invite this person to the birthday party yeah it's a good point and i mean especially uh, given that when you think about some of the enablers for that as well you've got to understand the inherent properties uh, around them too in that um yes culture for instance could be a big one which would determine how um you might respond to that particular individual that you met but also you know some of the differences maybe in the technology that you had available to them depending on what sort of demographic they're in or what sort of um technology platforms they were using you could still come up against some of those kind of uh, annoying nuances which get in the way of these experiences working well because you, know, you simply couldn't send that person an invitation because they didn't have the right kind of device to be able to use the app that you are using and, and vice versa and um, that sort of stuff I, I feel like um, will mature fairly rapidly and hopefully we'll get beyond that point as an industry quite soon uh, but at the moment it seems um, like you know there can still be uh, th these sort of um, pitfalls w which occur but just going back to um, some of the things you mentioned about lumosity when we were talking earlier um, I I'm intrigued about how you deal with that sort of interplay between things like um, the, the motivations and the ability to then execute on those. And you mentioned that with some of the things that you're doing around uh, brain training, or uh, these are quite challenging, specifically quite challenging things for users to do. And um, a great deal of experienced design work at the moment, particularly in uh, traditional industries, is about simply making things simple and easy and um, to disappear very quickly. But uh, I'm guessing with Lumosity, when you're actually uh, directly challenging people to learn something new, it, it might be a bit of a different challenge compared to um, just you know, just the action of, of simplifying things that we're seeing in, in various other industries. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a great question. Um, so the way we think about it is that the, the core IP of our company, which is like the games and the data that we collect, um, we try to orient around that. And we know from game design principles as well that um, you shouldn't simplify things too much. You need people to be like, challenged at the right level so that they're in the flow state so that they're having fun and are engaged and if you go below this level then it's not fun and if you go above this level or if you make it really hard for people then also they're not having fun and they wouldn't consistently stay motivated to pursue this behavior over and over again um, so it's a really interesting challenge um, in terms of the games that we design we try to make them fun we try to vary the challenge level slowly ramp it up slowly so that a user can like actually learn the game and then quickly get to the right challenge appropriate challenge level for their capability but we also wrap these games around in our meta experience which enables people to form some simple mental models uh, one of the simple mental models that we have is that we um, kind of wrap a few games into a workout every day and we expect people to come back and do workouts for different games over a longer period of time 
So I was talking about the meta experience. Um, and the in, in the meta experience, basically what we could do is we could either make it super engaging um, and challenging on its own, or we could just make it really simple for people to get in, understand this mental model around workouts, this mental model around how to play these games. Um, so that's another way of thinking about it. So we balance out keeping things simple to understand with making them challenging so that you're challenging your brains, your memory, attention, problem-solving skills in a certain way. So you've mentioned game design a, a couple of times there. I mean, do you um, fundamentally see what Lumosity does uh, as a challenge uh, around game design at its heart? We have different types of challenges. So um, we have like teams dedicated to creating games where there are primary challenges around game design, but we have also quite a few different types of projects going on which don't inherently deal with game design, but they deal still with experience design challenges or engagement design challenges or creating habits. Now, for you personally, um, when you became involved with that, um, had you had exposure to um, the sort of metrics that you might use to calculate success among users in these particular things that you're now working on with Lumosity? Uh, or did you find yourself having to rethink you know, some of the ways that you measure that and, and learn new methods to be able to get a, an effective sense as the user experience director of whether or not what you were doing uh, was actually working for the users? Um, I mean, ultimately, user experience design fits in into this larger context of what the product team is trying to do and what the and even larger context of what the company is trying to do. So in light of those things, I think the metrics that the company cares about is what we as designers should also care about. But that doesn't mean that you cannot focus on certain specific like lenses, um, the lens that I talked about around user satisfaction. Of course, the company cares about it too, but they care also about financial uh, aspects of where we are. We, for us, as a design team, the user satisfaction metrics and the engagement metrics matter a lot more than um, some of the other things. So they fade away for us and we focus more on creating engaging products and creating features and ideas and doing experiments that will ultimately help you know, the metrics around engagement. So that's one way that we've looked at it so far. Have you found that there are particular challenges associated uh, with doing that um, when you're trying to get people to engage in these sort of flow states uh, and be very focused on, on, on what they're doing with the products um, versus something where it might be a bit easier to get them to talk about their engagement, say, when you're doing observations or, or interviews with them? Um, d does that make it more difficult given that, you know, you want to see them very highly engaged while they're doing this and therefore it's a bit more difficult for them to, to talk about their experience as they do it? <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. So uh, we have like an interesting practice where we get users from outside in every Tuesday and every Thursday, and we show them all our prototypes and we keep showing them our like, games that are in development. We keep showing them the product features that we are developing. We try to get the feedback uh, by, you know, watching how they're performing or watching what they're doing. So most of the time, uh, when it comes to the specific point where they're actually engaged in the games it's really hard for them to you know we ask them to talk out loud while they're actually experiencing whatever we are showing them it becomes really hard for them to do both things at a time 
And I don't think it hurts us at all. I think what we really enjoy learning is that if they've stopped focusing on talking out loud while playing the game, it's not a bad thing. Like their brain is being challenged and uh, they're feeling really engaged in uh, playing the game. So that's really good feedback. We look for emotions. We look for magic moments. We look for stuff that's annoying and frustrating to people. And that all is like good information for us to iterate and figure out what the best experience to give users is. Well, I suppose it makes a bit of a challenge for you as practitioners uh, in that you have to really hone your observational skills alongside what you're being told by users to be able to make those kind of nuanced judgments about uh, what it is you're actually seeing and the sort of little um, uh, individual characteristics of how each user is engaging. Uh, Just thinking a bit broader here than what you're doing with Lumosity and for some of your personal experiences. are there things uh, in terms of new technologies which are arriving in the market which um, excite you about new possibilities for experience design? I mean, for instance, from my perspective, one of the things that we have been uh, thinking about recently, and in fact, have some uh, other podcasts on, is around um, virtual reality and augmented reality and mixed reality and some of the challenges that that might throw up, both for how you can create experiences, but also how you measure people's uh, interactions with those. I mean, when you think about some of the new things that are uh, appearing on the market, and I know you know living and working um, on the west coast of the US, I'm sure you get exposed to a lot of this stuff. Are there particular ones that jump out at you as being exciting mm-hmm. at the moment? Um, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think it's it's a it's an interesting conversation because um, I totally believe in the fact that, like as technology comes, like amazing technology comes and starts spreading and it becomes part of your life, you just stop realizing that it's magical. Um, and it just becomes second nature. And so, like, so many of the advances that have happened in the back end on, say, a simple product like Google Search, well, it's not simple, but it's it's something that you use every day and you expect to function a certain way. They've become so much more awesomer at giving better results faster to you. And we don't realize that as, like, a huge advancement because it just, you know, it just happens slightly in the background. Um, but aside from that fact, I feel there are lots of exciting products coming. Um, Amazon Echo is one of the interesting ones for me. Um, <laughs> uh, we recently bought this product and, uh, it's been interesting using, uh, you know, calling it out and asking Alexa to play a certain type of music. Um, you don't have to, you know, open your phone, find the app, search for something that works. You can just, you know, bark at Alexa and like ask it to just start playing. And it more often than not does a good enough job. So what's Uh, been the most satisfying experience for you personally with that so far? Was there any sort of moment you had with it where you were uh, amazed by its abilities? Of course. um, I asked uh, Alexa to play the cello because I felt like listening to the cello and I played this amazing song. Um, out of the blue and it just we were like transfixed and we were like wow this was amazing i would never have heard anything like this if i had to actually open the phone and find an app and you know do all this extra steps for uh, listening to something and so just saying something naturally that's that that's how your brain works and you can just say it out loud and an ai can process it and like give you something that's good back that's just magical and of course we have like a long way where this is um, on a net net basis satisfying uh, over a long a lot of many experiences like i ask alexa so many questions over the day it's only a few times when it really works and gives you the magic moment 
Um, so I feel that as the AI improves, um, this is going to be really awesome. And then again, it's going to disappear because everybody's going to expect this is how it should work, of course. <laughs> so when do you think we reach that tipping point with these kind of um, AI-powered interfaces uh, and things which allow for that natural language input where the mass market starts to uh, adopt them because obviously for people like you and I who work in this area there's a degree of experimentation expected we do these things because we have a bit of a professional interest in them and we're willing to uh, continue to persevere um, when the things don't work just to see you know what's going to come next Uh, but for the mass market where maybe there's a lower tolerance of those things how far off do you think we are um, from that kind of intersection of AI, natural language interfaces, um, ambient awareness coming together in a way which actually people feel that they're able to engage with and start using habitually during the day? Yeah, that's a great question. And of course, tons of experts have opined upon on this subject and so many awesome companies um, are really thinking hard about this problem. Um I mean, I can only make a wild guess um, because I'm not like specifically working on solving this problem. But my understanding is that um, we are going to zero in on specific use cases where a lot of people would benefit. We'll try and solve, you know, optimize for solving those types of problems. And around those solved problems is how we are going to like increase the impact. Um, And slowly we'll start solving problems where like, you know, some habits that we don't use as often. We'll be solving for those habits and then even more and even more rarer habits. So um, timeline-wise, I, I don't think I have a very good answer, but I do see, like, I can ask Alexa to, you know, switch off my lights and um, switch on my lights for me because I have, like, a specific switch connected to it. And that's very basic. You can hear Alexa in the background. <laughs> well, that was nice of Alexa for, to join us for the, the podcast. <laughs> but no, I, I think it raises a, a really good point um, and one which I think is applicable across a lot of areas of experience design at the moment, particularly as they start to touch on things like natural interfaces, artificial intelligence, things which bring digital closer to our day-to-day lives as opposed to being siloed around specific needs or specific applications. And that is that I think a lot of the long-term success here is going to be determined in the short term by how well these things fail. I mean, you made the point earlier that um, Amazon, the Echo, still makes quite a few mistakes for you personally. And I think that's probably true of of a lot of the the users with it. Um, The same could be said uh, of something like Google Search, which has recently evolved to use a lot more artificial intelligence and neural network techniques uh, in the background. Um, But generally, when uh, something like Google Search fails at the moment, it doesn't really feel like a failure for the user because it's not as distinct. It's not as obviously identifiable as being something um, which you know really hasn't worked and has broken irreparably. Whereas I feel like at the moment, quite a few of the uh, voice interface driven products 
when they fail, there's still that real sort of sense of frustration. It's very obvious that that's a, a failure. Uh, is this something which you've spent time thinking about in the context of things that you do at Lumosity around how you can avoid those real roadblock kind of failures within an application that something can always give a, a certain amount of graceful failure, if you like, um, so that the, the user continues to, to want to engage with it, even if they don't get quite the, the result they're expecting? Yeah, I mean, that that's a very great, that's an awesome point. Um, so uh, with, with Lumosity is like, you know, when we do experiments with creating new features and new ideas, this happens often. Uh, the only thing we try to do is we try to mitigate the issues by doing soft launches or by creating prototypes and putting them in front of people and like getting feedback early. So we have more and more confidence that when we invest, you know, run the machinery of the company to you know, actually develop a solution, um, it's not super risky. So we're re- reducing risk in stages. Um, but but it's a tricky situation because um, you need a lot of feedback to be able to fix the problems as well, right? And so I think Amazon's strategy has been quite good, which is uh, I'm sure they did like internal tests and then they ultimately launched Amazon Echo. And I think only when you launch a product like uh, like an, uh, an AI-based product that's supposed to be like improving by learning in the real world, this is the only way to do it. Like that's what Tesla is doing with their self-driving cars. That's what that's how it's going to actually improve. So you have to launch it uh, in this specific field, then get the data, and then learn from that, and then improve. There's no other way. But of course, like for other products where like AI is not, you know, the central thing driving it, you can reduce risk in stages by actually, you know, doing testing beforehand, doing soft launches, doing, you know, showing it to a few users, and then trying to you know make it reach out to a lot more people yeah it's an interesting balance that and i think one which is going to become increasingly relevant uh, as more and more uh, of these systems start to use artificial intelligence techniques to underpin the experience that they deliver because inherently those things need scale uh, to be able to be tested but obviously you've got to scale that up gradually otherwise you end up getting into a situation where the system is making inaccurate recommendations or inaccurate uh, guesses about what it is um, users are trying to do and it starts to put people off so it's going to be a um, perhaps require us to, to really um, question some of the, the user experience methods that we use to make sure that that's we can true continue yeah to, to strike that I, balance. I, I, I have a question for you like if you had to imagine, paint me a picture of what, you know, your life would be like um, if AI's promise is delivered, right? Because from that vision, we can work backwards and then see, oh, these are like the things that would really be awesome to have. And maybe we can like do experiments there and figure out how to trade there. So imagine you're doing this like podcasting thing with Max. And if there was like ever present AI that was, that could help you, would it be possible for you to paint a picture of what it would look like or what it would be like? Yeah. I mean, I suppose one of the things which springs to mind first, um, is this notion of being able to connect into sources of knowledge uh, and references. If we're talking here specifically about the, the podcast, which uh, we wouldn't otherwise come across. 
and at the moment um you and i are having a conversation which is you know ranging from topic to topic and it's employing all of the different um information that we've gathered now backgrounds and things that we've gone off specifically to research for this podcast but clearly there are a wealth of data out there and all kinds of different information ideas which might uh, intersect with this which at the moment would still require us to undertake quite a lot of manual research to get hold of that that there was one quite inspiring example um, that i saw of in a video produced by a british uh, design agency called berg um, going back several years now Berg now unfortunately has disbanded but yeah a lot of their work I think remains very prescient and they showed the example of a little screen which was placed next to uh, a radio and as the radio show went on uh, images just started to appear on this screen which supported the things that were being talked about on the radio show and it got me thinking about that notion of if you could do that seamlessly in a way which just sort of happens ambiently in the background. You know, I'm looking at my notes for the podcast in front of me at the moment, but they're static, whereas the conversation that you and I are having is dynamic and is potentially going off into all kinds of different you know, virtual hyperlinks, which could be of interest. Uh, maybe in the future, we'll find a way for that to happen more automatically so that you know, I can now be seeing on screen something interesting, which I can ask you about. Out later on in the show or, or vice versa yeah that sounds fascinating i'm sure like even the just like the process that you go through for creating podcasts and there's so many optimizations that could be made that you would rather not have to do manually and they just happened in the background if like you know an ambient ai could really figure out how to do um like some of those issues like um when you enter your house, your door unlocks automatically. Um, the light turns on. The the air conditioning is at the right temperature. All of these things are realizable at this point, but they still need quite a bit of setup, obviously. Um, and so that's how we are approaching this problem in this day and age. For some people who really care about it, they're able to do this after having, you know, manually set it up. But it's not mass market just yet. And so I think that's how it's going to expand slowly. Uh, the homes are going to uh, get automated. Um, specific tasks that people do, like research, um, figuring out information, being triggered by the right type of information at the right time, those types of tasks are also going to be taken up by the AI. Well, there's a, a lovely example which uh, listeners might like to go and check out, and that was in uh, the episode of the podcast with Louisa Heinrich, uh, who specializes in this area all around uh, ambient intelligence and how that might um, play into things like robots and, and drones and home automation. Uh, and she talked about it at a previous MEX event as well. And she often comes back to this example of your kitchen becoming a bit of a war zone between these different smart appliances where you might have one appliance um, that is keen to keep your milk cold but you might have another that wants to let sunlight in because it's tied to some kind of automated plant watering system or plant maintenance uh, system and these things end up getting into this battle around you know who's actually in charge of making the decision about whether or not the blinds get raised or the blinds get closed during the course of the day uh, and she tells it much better than i do but uh, go back and have a, a listen to the the episode with louisa heimrich in the archive and you'll get a, a good idea of some of the the challenges that we still face before we can 
overcome that. Yeah, I'll um, check it out. It's a great premise for even science fiction novels as well. Absolutely, yeah. It's a, a frightening picture for the future, perhaps. Um, but let's uh, go back just a, a little bit. I, I wanted to ask you um, about uh, your um, personal ambitions in experience design. Um, you spoke a little bit about the route that you came through, through uh, engineering and then developing that interesting UI and now going on to become a UX director at you know, a really quite pioneering company in, uh, in Silicon Valley. Um, but what might come next for you? Are, are there any things left which you are really keen to, to try? And um, you know, when you think about the future, you'd like to, to have a go at doing? Oh, I mean, absolutely. I think, uh, I believe, and the first principles of just always learning and even the type of people we hire, like I learn from like people who have never done UX. There's just so much to learn from them and integrate that into your own practice. So I think, I think this field is just in, in the beginning right now. Um, we've, we've been shooting from the shoulders of the giants who really like pioneered this field, but there's so much to do in this field. And I think this field is going to be one of the major forces which you know creates value for companies creates value for people um improves their lives for the better and that can only happen if like all the people that that are in this field that are you know representing the users and balancing the needs of technological needs with the business needs they really keep learning keep evolving and so that's what i really believe in which is just keep learning keep evolving and take this field to a place where we have not imagined yet. So we, we've talked a bit today about um, different theoretical frameworks uh, and ones which tie back to people, I guess, who have uh, come more from the, the academic world. Um, you've obviously come through um, uh, design and, and engineering education yourself. When you think about where we might get to with experience design and the sort of people that you're now looking to hire uh, in your role, um, what do you think about that relationship between design practitioners within companies and industry uh, and those in academic institutions? Uh, you know, are there some things we need to do to evolve that relationship to ensure that, um, that the design education courses that are being taught are really equipping people for some of these challenges we've touched on around artificial intelligence and natural interfaces and all of these different things that uh, as user experience practitioners we're going to be asked to solve in the future? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting uh, question. I guess, um, well, the first thing we need to do is just <laughs> keep pace with what is happening in the world right now. Like, even right now, the way product design is done at companies is quite different from how it's taught in colleges and schools. And it's there's like quite a bit of difference, right? Uh, when we actually work at a company like Lumosity, we are not the only people who design. We are we're doing part of design, but we collaborate with so many smart people uh, across disciplines. Like we're working with data scientists, we're working with uh, product managers, we're working with customer service. We're getting all this information, facilitating workshops, and then you know, with our special approach to problem solving, um, coming up with tons of prototypes, going broad quickly, um, getting feedback in the real world, so that we can reduce risk in stages and you know, really be confident that the solution we are going ahead with is going to be really resonating with a lot of users, um, you know, gaining an understanding of our core users and then making 
you know, products for them. Um, so these types of things, I think we can still improve a lot on. Um, and so because there's already a huge gap that we haven't filled, like all the people that are coming into this field, um, they're not solving the problems in the right way just right now. And we need to keep pace basically with all this, um, all the new types of problems that are coming in with AI. There's a very different type of problem that's going to come in. Um, as an example, I can tell you like, um, we created a, uh, an app to help people improve sleep. It's called Coach Nova. And it's basically a two way conversation format type of an app where, um, you know, it's not super smart, but it's a coach that over a text-based messaging uh, model talks to you, gets your information, and gives you suggestions for what you could do uh, to improve your sleep and keeps connecting with you, uh, keeps assessing where you're coming from, keeps um, giving you feedback. Just designing for that type of a product was like very different than traditional models where we you know, have UI and screens where people interact with it and people swipe through to get to the next screen this is this was a completely different challenge like if you're designing for this model how do you test for these things like you have to keep going back and it's a completely different problem space basically well i think as some of these emerging technologies and um, uh, user experience practices start to become um, innate to a wide range of different industries uh, it really does highlight that need for um, practitioners in this space to keep expanding the, their own knowledge and to develop um, working vocabularies which allow them to interact with all of those other practitioners and uh, and disciplines which are going to be needed to make things like those um, you know new services like the example you gave around sleep um, actually translate into meaningful experiences for consumers it's not something which you can do from a place of isolation it's something which really requires that sort of polymath approach. Uh, one of the other things I wanted to ask you about as well is uh, how you feel about the role of uh, external design agencies um, in helping solve some of those challenges. I mean, if you think about uh, an organization, say, like Lumosity or you know, another um, startup in the, the, the tech space, and we think back a few years, um, it's perhaps less likely that uh, those kind of companies would have had an experienced in-house team like the one that you're leading and would be more reliant perhaps on an external design agency. Uh, do you have any thoughts about how that sort of relationship might evolve in the future and, and what role there will be for um, uh, for independent agencies to support those sort of user experience uh, innovations within startups and within tech companies that are, are building out their own in-house functions? Um, yeah, I mean, there is interesting gaps that external agencies can fill, but I'm a firm believer in the fact that like you need people in house to own a problem, be committed to a problem to really understand deeply uh, the problems users are facing, empathize with them over a longer period of time. And then they are the best people who are like situated in the right place, who have the best information to be able to like solve these problems on an ongoing basis. Whereas, you know, generally with agencies, they come in, they try to get a sense of the problem, they solve it, and then they move on. They don't really understand, you know, get the feedback from an experiment on what happened, and then they can't iterate on it. And I think 
that's the biggest problem with agencies, at least right now. That doesn't mean that they don't provide a lot of value uh, in specific scenarios. And so I think there could be an interesting balance where, you know, if you're starting up a team that's quite fresh, uh, there could be agencies with like much more experienced uh, people who could come in and set up the right practices, who could, uh, you know, fill in the gap of, you know, helping us out with situations like how do we do branding if there's no in-house capability around branding? Because those are like um, problems that you solve in a cyclical way, say once every year. And so that's where I think agencies could come into. Yeah, it feels like a fast developing area at the moment, uh, particularly, as you say, as there's more emphasis placed um, by startups on having those skills in-house and making them very core. And in fact, we've had a couple of interesting conversations on the podcast about that uh, previously with um, some VCs who specialize in investing in companies where they see uh, user experience talent as being a key competitive differentiator and them actually wanting to see that very much as part of the core team. Um, but that you know that's an environment where design agencies um, will no doubt continue to play some kind of role, but perhaps uh, an evolving one. Uh, now, I'm conscious that um, we're coming up to the end of our time together on the interview, and I'm very grateful for you taking the, the time to come and join us for this. It's been uh, you know, a really diverse and, and interesting conversation. Um, we'll make sure that we include links in the show notes to the various frameworks and things that we've talked about, also to Lumosity and uh, your personal projects that you're working on. Um, but thanks very much indeed for, for joining us for the show. And you know, I hope we'll keep up the discussion in the future. Yeah, thanks. Um, this was an awesome conversation. Thank you so much. That's it for this edition of Mex Design Talk. Don't forget, you can find detailed show notes linking to all of the things that we talked about in this episode at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. There's also a full archive of all of our previous episodes, so do go back and have a listen to some of the other topics that we've covered. And we'd love to hear your feedback. Reach us at MexFeed on Twitter or take a look in those show notes for other ways to get in touch. Please also share the podcast, let others know about it. It's a great way to get new listeners involved in the MEX community. So do please spread the word either by sharing on your social networks or leaving us a review on iTunes, which helps to bump the podcast up the ratings and get it in front of more people. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.